Hi, this is Wayne Randazzo of the WCBS Mets Radio Network, and you're listening to Baseball and BBQ. Barbecue Studios in Chile, Long Island. This is episode 119 of Baseball and Barbecue. I'm here with the incredible Mr. Leonard Averman, and I'm Woo! Jeff Cohen. <laughs> Thank you. And, and I am here with the awesome, and I do mean awesome, Jeff Cohen. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Leonard. And it is chilly here in Long Island. Oh, it is. Yes. How chilly is it? <laughs> it's so chilly that the lobster jumped into the pot of boiling water. That's how chilly it is. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> Jeff, we've got such an exciting episode. And we also want to talk about something that just happened, which is the Hall of Fame vote. So why don't we tell the listeners what they have to look forward to on this episode? We have Dan Joseph, author of the book, Baseball's Greatest What If? The story and tragedy of the Brooklyn Dodgers pistol, Pete Reeser who was a tremendous baseball player who yeah. you know just had a habit of running into outfield walls. He never met a wall that he didn't want to run through. Exactly. But yeah. And you know, it's unfortunate, of course, it's almost uncanny how many times he ran into the wall, but that is certainly going to be discussed in the interview with Dan Joseph, who is appearing for, for his second time on this Right. The first time he did a book on Lou Gehrig. That's right. So and, and a very special Lou Gehrig was it was the last ride of the Iron Horse. That's right. Yeah. One of his final seasons. Yeah. Yeah. So we recommend that. And uh, we hope everyone enjoys that interview. And then, of course, Jeff, we have on none other than Denny Mike. And I, I have to say it. And I don't think anyone's going to dispute me when I say this. Barbecue royalty, none other than Artie Davis. Denny Mike and Artie Davis. All right. And you know what, Jeff? You, you got to give a... Denny Mike was, was great in the interview. But you got to give credit to Denny Mike because he's coming on to the show. And he brings on someone who he respects. We all respect Artie Davis without any fear that Artie Davis is going to outshine him, outdo him. And they really are together. They were, they were a great team on the interview. Len, you mentioned Hall of Fame. Artie I Davis did, yes. is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yes, and I don't think that he ever used PEDs. No, he didn't. No. <laughs> but 
Jeff, that that's a good segue, and you're good at segueing to what just happened uh, this week: the results of the Hall of Fame for 2022 were announced. And in my opinion, this vote is just as much about who didn't get in and is not on the writer's ballot anymore than who did get in. What do you think? Who are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, it's very controversial, obviously. Now, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa, Kirk Schilling, those guys will not be on the Baseball Writers of America Association ballot anymore. They they will be eligible, I guess, for the today's era, whenever other committees meet. I know it's not yearly. Mm-hmm. I think it's every couple of years, but I think the next one is this December. So some of them might be on that ballot. So we haven't heard the last of them, but they will not be on the writer's ballot, which, you know what? About time we've been through this 10 years. Enough of this controversy. We don't have to speak about it again. But you, Jeff, you made a great point before. You know, you you mentioned that there was a writer who put out there that the Hall of Fame was doing something with baseball history. They okay. were basically. Yes, it was. Go ahead. It was a tweet that was written by Jeff Passan on January 25th. So he says, and I'm quoting from the tweet, Barry Bonds belongs in the Hall of Fame. And if he's not there by the end of today, the museum has failed in its stated mission, preserve history, unquote. Now, I have a a thing with that statement because it's the Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. And Museum. Yeah. Right. The story of Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, those guys, the, the whole PED era, there's exhibits in the hall, in the museum part. In the museum part, that's that, right. That, that tells the story, warts and all. Right. But my problem with this this tweet that Jeff Pass and don't let me know, Jeff Pass is a great baseball writer. Of course. The most respectable, one of the most respected baseball writers there is. But the museum has not failed at its stated mission. I mean, it's the baseball writers who do the voting who put these guys into the, that get the plaques. The baseball Hall of Fame does not dictate who to put in in the Hall of Fame. They leave that up to the writers and then those, those subcommittees. So shouldn't Jeff Passan's anger be more toward his Brethren in the Baseball Writers Association of America? Yes, but there's two things there. The second is it's the Hall of Fame and Museum. The museum has plenty of things about Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling. It has the bloody sock is in the museum. The the Hall of Fame, if you want to say that the Hall of Fame is baseball history, it is. But it's not how many plaques are in the Hall of Fame that baseball has been played by thousands of people. There aren't that many compared to that. The plaques in the Hall of Fame are not many. It's the museum that tells the story. The Hall of Fame tells part of the story. The museum tells the story. These guys are in the museum. They don't have to be in the Hall of Fame. Now, whether they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame or not. In the Hall of Fame, there's there's two things. If you've never been there, or if you have, you know what I'm talking about, where there's the plaques, and then you go into the museum. They are in the museum. The Hall of Fame, that whether they deserve to be on a plaque or not, is not the point. 
they are in the museum. They are part of baseball history. Right. So and, that and, is, and, is and again, I want to say that the board of directors, the people who run the Hall of Fame, do not put those plaques up right. there. It's those voters who dictate who goes yeah. into the Hall of Fame. So Jeff Passan really should not direct his anger toward the Hall of Fame. It's really his, they have his, nothing to do with it. Right. Nothing. But I will say he did write an article for ESPN. I'm let me go. I'm going to quote a little bit from it. Okay. So let me just read this. It's one of the last paragraphs. The National Baseball Hall of Fame needs to induct Barry Bonds. There are so many simple solutions, ones that would satisfy the whole state mission and recognize it's possible to celebrate the player of Bonds while, and while bemoaning his choice, choices he made. All it takes is the right words on the plaque. And since the Hall won't do this this year, it seems proper for, for time to take a crack. So he is writing Barry Bonds' plaque. This is what he would put on. Barry Lamar Bonds. Pittsburgh NL, San Francisco NL, 1986-2007. Baseball's home run king with 762, won seven MVP awards, and walked more than any player in history. With fearsome left-handed swing, set single-season home run record with 73, and redefined hitting for a generation. Use of performance-enhancing drugs, muddled accomplishments, epitomized MLB's steroid era. Hero and villain simultaneously, Possess uncommon power, speed combination, made even better by I that helped lead NL in on-base percentages 10 times. That is Barry Barnes. That is how you preserve history. Now, you know what? I don't think they will have the guts to put that on a plaque. No, they won't. They won't. Now, if he ever gets in his plaque, uh, I don't think it'll mention PEDs. I agree. I don't think so. Yeah. And yeah. if it did, if it did come up with something like this, you know, Barry Bonds is not going to go to the induction ceremony. Right. Well, I don't even know. I, I'm not sure if these guys like Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Kurt Schilling. Now, Kurt Schilling, of course, is not. People are, are not voting for him because of PEDs. Right. He has another reason. But the point is, I can't imagine Kurt Schilling, if he ever gets in, going to the ceremony because... But but who knows? He could do something shocking, but I just don't I just don't see it. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't think. But of course, Big Poppy got in, right? David Ortiz got into the Hall of Fame, got in basically he's a DH. Uh, you know, that's his he's a DH. So of course there's part argument that he didn't play defense and offense, but we know that baseball say whatever people want to say. Offense is considered heavier uh, as far as the statistic in baseball. Totally that, agree. We know that. Totally agree. That's why David Ortiz got in. Right. Very few players got in on mainly on defense. Ozzie Smith, right. Bill Mazurowski, Brooks Robinson, just name a few. But really, it's really the offensive perilous that, that gets right. uh, into the Hall of Fame. And he got in uh, as DH. And I see, in my opinion... He's the he was the best at DH is a position. And you know what? Uh, is, he, he's also a likable guy. Extremely. Just the name Big Poppy. That that name just, you know, it's kind of. And his speech after the terrorist attack and at the Boston Marathon. That won him some, you know, mm-hmm. kudos, you know, some mm-hmm. people saying that, you know, that put him over the top. He's extremely likable guy. Yes. Who, by the way, is he was found, I guess, is one of the leaked 
test that they the, the anonymous test that's supposed to be don, anonymous. Apparently, he's he's on that list now. Whether it was substance banned or not, who knows? But is that slight taint, if anything? Well, I don't. Even baseball is saying that he may not necessarily be on that list because of steroids or something. Is that? Did you see something like that? Yeah, you know, I, I, those things are so crazy. I mean, if you can, my opinion. And if you can buy something in, in a health food store, it, it shouldn't be on a ban list. But that's right. that's me. Right. But then, so one other point, okay? And I, I who knows if I've said this before, but you, you have some people who argue that steroids were not banned from baseball. These players that were using them, they weren't banned at the time. But I'm going to say it again. They were illegal in the United States of America. And unless baseball is another country, okay, these players don't live in baseball. If a substance is illegal in the United States, something about it not being banned in baseball should not make it okay. It's illegal. <laughs> That's all. It's illegal to take a drug, a prescribed drug without being prescribed by a physician to you. And who knows? Some of these steroids... Are, are not being prescribed. I mean, some of these steroids are supposedly given to horses. Like, I'm not sure if it's Winstrol or there's some steroid that, so some of these are never prescribed, not to right. human beings. Right. <laughs> you know? And also we go back to David Ortiz, you know, he was involved, he, he was shot back in June of 2019, if you remember that. Uh-huh. Um, but he, David Ortiz in the postseason is clutch. Yes, he is. I mean, I, he had like 89 or 87 to 89 or something at bats in the postseason, And I think he hit like 17 home runs or 19, so, something like that. My, my mind is hazy right now. You know, a, the, couple, a couple of podcasts thing. back, we had John Vapatella on and he was telling us about the 2004 division playoffs and how big poppy hit a couple of big home runs in that, mm-hmm. that series as well. Yeah. So he really, and I understand some players never get to the postseason, but just because players get there, you, you can't hold that against him. You've got to count postseason if a player gets to the postseason, just like you don't count it against players who don't get oh, to the postseason. Big moments count. Big moments definitely count. Absolutely. That's why some of uh, you'll hear arguments for uh, why people don't think Trevor Hoffman should have gotten into the Hall of Fame because name a big moment when Trevor Hoffman pitched, uh, uh, got a save. Right. But so big moments, they should count a lot. And I think in big poppy's case, they did count. a Yes. Lot. But Len, why don't we go back to a simpler era in baseball? Let's go back to 1940s and hear from Dan Joseph and the story about Pete Reeser. Dan Joseph is a Washington based journalist and author and a senior editor in the Voice of America's Central Newsroom. His website is www.danjosephauthor.net. His newest book, Baseball's Greatest What If, The Story and Tragedy of Pistol Pete Reeser, released by Sunbury Press. The book examines the career of Pete Reeser, the Brooklyn Dodgers star of 1940, whose surefire Hall of Fame career was derailed by reckless win-at-all-cost style of play, highlighted by his tendency to run into outfield walls. Dan's initial appearance on baseball and BBQ was about his previous book, The Last Ride of the Iron Horse, about Lou Gehrig's 1938 season and a terrific read. 
Welcome back to Baseball and BBQ, Dan Joseph. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Len, for having us. Me, having me, there's only one me. <laughs> Dan, one thing before Jeff starts. You were on for your other book. Now you're on for this book. You know, it's a lot of work to go through just to be able to talk to us. So we really appreciate that every time you want to speak to us, you write a book. That's <laughs> a lot. You're welcome. Next time, just pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, the rewards are so high. So I, I put in the effort. I, I don't want to you know, feel like I'm getting a freebie. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Jeff. Dan, I was fascinated by this book because I heard the name Pete Reza, but I didn't know much about him. So my first question is, and you probably asked this the most, is how did Howard Patrick Reeser become Pete? <laughs> Harold Patrick Reeser. Well, Patrick, his middle name comes from the fact that he was born on St. Patrick's Day in 1919. Harold, I don't know where Harold came from, but he, when he was young, when he was a little kid, apparently he was a big fan of Western movies. And there was a character, this was like in the 1920s, character named Two-Gun Pete that he liked or people were familiar with. And somehow he just kind of adopted that as, adopted Pete as his name. And the, the term Pistol Pete was also sort of a kind of a stock character in Westerns at the time. And so he got Pete from the Western and then Pistol Pete also from Westerns. And by the time he was like 10, he was maybe even earlier, he was Pete. He, Harold was the name his mother used, and that's it. Now, Dan, you call him baseball's greatest what if. Now, in music, we have what we call one-hit wonders, right, where you have a group puts out, a, a, I guess, a very famous song. I guess the biggest one that I know of is The Knack with My Sharona. That's always referred to as a, as a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. So he's the baseball's greatest what if. You've got a listing in the book, which we'll get to later, of other what ifs. But can you tell us exactly what you mean by a what if? Well, in my definition, a great what if player is a guy who showed great potential and actually had even had some success in the major leagues. And then it was sort of uh, taken away from him, you know, or he, he failed and and washed out of the major leagues very quickly. So a guy like Sandy Koufax, you know, Sandy Koufax, he had to retire at age 30, but he had like six spectacular years before that. He's not a what if, but someone like J.R. Richard, you know, he was just starting to reach his peak when, you know, he had the stroke. He, he's a what if. Uh, Jose Fernandez, you know, killed in the motorboat accident. He is definitely a, a what if. Uh, and Pete Reeser, he had about a year and a half where he showed he was going to be a superstar. And then he crashed into an outfield wall badly for the first time. And after that, he was a shadow of the player he could have been. And he is, I, I think, you know, based on what we saw in that year and a half, he, he could have been an all-time superstar. And so that's why I, I nominate him. I don't say definitively, but at least I nominate him as baseball's greatest what if. He was born in St. Louis in 1919, as you said, a few years before Yogi Berra and Joe Garagiola. You wanted to play for his hometown team, the Cardinals, but that wasn't meant to be. How did he become a Brooklyn Dodger? And could you elaborate on the chapter where you said about a gentleman's agreement? Yeah, Pete signed with the Cardinals, his hometown team, 
when apparently when he was only 15 years old and he was too young to actually join the minor leagues at the time. So they gave him, they put the Cardinals chief scout, Charlie Barrett in charge of Pete and the guys, the two of them spent a summer riding around America as Charlie Barrett did his scouting of all the Cardinals minor league teams. And that was no small thing at the time because the Cardinals controlled about 20 minor league teams and had 500 players. So they spent a long time riding around. But when Pete turned 18, they finally uh, put him in the minor league system and he spent one year in the, with the Cardinals. Class D ball, I guess what we would call low class A today. Spring of 1938, the commissioner of baseball judge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, he declared 91 Cardinal players to be free agents. The reason being he thought the Cardinals were using suspicious means to stash players in the minors, basically. You know, they were, they were using handshake deals and fake contracts and all sorts of stuff. And he released Pete Reeser, too. So the, Gar the Cardinals and the Dodgers cooked up a deal where the Dodgers would take Reeser for three years and then sell, sell him back to the Cardinals. The problem with this was that Reeser was too good. They couldn't stash him in the minor leagues without him catching, without him getting a lot of notice. And, and the cover was really blown in spring training 1939 when Reeser kind of talked himself into Dodger spring training. Leo DeRocher, who was the in his first year as the Dodgers manager, he liked Reeser, brought him into the major league camp and put Reeser in exhibition games. And Reeser got on base the first 11 times he was up. Eight hits, three walks. Now he had the attention of the New York press. DeRocher wanted to keep him on the Dodger roster, the major league roster. Larry McPhail, the Dodgers GM, said, no, nah, he's too young. No, 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 no. He needs more time in the minor leagues. And this, there was this big brouhaha between them and a drunken confrontation. And basically McPhail won the argument. Reeser went back down to the minor leagues, but he people couldn't ignore him. And then the following year, he was hitting 370. And finally, the Dodgers told the Cardinals, we can't, you know, send you back, send him back to you. It's going to cause, going to pull attention to what we did. The Cardinals traded Joe Medwick, a Hall of Famer and a Triple Crown winner to the Dodgers. And the Dodgers paid $132,000 for, supposedly for Medwick, but it was revealed in time that at least some of that money was for Reaser to compensate the Cardinals for the loss of Reaser. And he may not have been the only Reaser to play ball. His brother was being looked at by the Yankees. However, he tragically passed away at an early age due to scarlet fever. And Pete, Pete had the virus as well, but he obviously survived. Yeah. His, his brother's death spurned him to pursue even more sports than he already did, correct? Yeah, that, that's, that's what Pete always said. You know, his, his brother died when he was 10 years old. So Pete was 10 and his brother was 15. Uh, but he was playing with his brother regularly. And you had to like play, you know, play against kids four or five years older. So that was one of the reasons he played with so much intensity. And then he always remembered his brother for the rest of his life and said his brother was a better player than he was. I mean, who knows? There's I don't even know for a fact that he, his brother was signed by the Yankees. That's what Pete always said. But I wasn't able to confirm that for the book. Yeah, but Pete played with an almost unbelievable in, uh, intensity and at least some of that traced back to his brother. Dan, you know what, as a lover of baseball history, all of these books and, and yours, is you, you did a, a ton of research 
these players don't play in vacuums. And what I mean by that is there's always going to be the names that you're going to have in the book. And the perfect example is this, Branch Rickey. If you ask nine out of 10 people, probably they'd say, yeah, Branch Rickey, GM of the Dodgers. But Branch Rickey had a whole career and quite a successful one as the GM of the Cardinals. Yeah. And with farm systems and just making a, a great team. So it was fascinating to to learn more about Branch Rickey prior to his experience with the Dodgers. That was very interesting as well. Yeah, it, it was it was interesting researching that. I had to go to the Library of Congress and I got to go through the Branch Rickey papers down there. And that that's a you could spend days doing that, just going through like old scouting reports and you see reports like a, a 18 year old Don Drysdale, for example, or guys like Richie Ashburn and Dick Grote and all, lots of old time players and see what they, what the Cardinals or the Dodgers thought of them when they were just teenagers. That, that was a lot of fun. And he had his whole career. He created the farm system with the dog, with the Cardinals, excuse me. And at one point the Cardinals had 31 teams in their, in their minor league system and 700 players. I mean, what are they, what are they supposed to do? with 700 players. There are a lot of guys who got lost in that system. There are probably some guys who, if they played today, would be major leaguers, but they were stuck in class B ball because, you know, the, the Cardinals already had five first basemen. They, they, they couldn't, couldn't move up. But why did he, why did he do that, Dan? Originally, the Cardinals were one of the poor teams in the National League. And in the days before farm system, farm systems, when, uh, a, a player became uh, known like on maybe a college team or a high school team or a local, you know, company league team, there would be a bidding war for that player. And it almost inevitably, like one of the New York, New York teams would win it or Chicago or the richer teams in St. Louis, the Cardinals were a poor club. So Ricky had the idea, what if we just started signing up lots and lots of these little known minor leaguers and especially in rural areas and bring them into our system, assign them all to the same team, and we can train them all the same way and make sure they get the best training. And it, it worked. It exploded. The Cardinals uh, started winning a bunch of pennants and, starting in the 1920s. And Ricky seemed to embark on a plan to vacuum up every young player in America. They That's why they had 700 players after a while. And I think the system sort of like collapsed, not collapsed, but they had to shrink down after a while because, you know, there was no re- there's no need for that. And it was uh, probably too much money. Probably. <laughs> I'm looking at his baseball reference page. And 1941, obviously, is best season. And, you know, I, I, he only played uh, 10 years in the majors, three years interrupted by the uh, military service, which we'll get into. But in 1941, Pete won the NL batting title and leading the league in eight other hitting and fielding categories. And he led the Dodgers to the NL pennant before losing to the Yankees four game to one. This was the uh, series where Mickey Owen had the pass ball and Tommy Hendrick reached first base. Sadly, today you see Titus turn around and go back to the dugout instead of running a drop third strike. But as they say, that that's baseball, Susan. <laughs> anyway, you, you write that Joe Posnanski, who we had on an episode 115, that between Ted Williams and Pete Reeser, Williams was the better hitter, but Reeser was a superior in all aspects of the game. That's mm-hmm. a bold statement. So, care to elaborate? 
Oh, it's, it's it's absolutely true. Now, now nobody could out hit Ted Williams. I mean, he, that last pre-war season, he, that was the year he hit 406, 30, 37 homers too. And But Pete Reeser was, I mean, he did lead the National League at 343, so he's not doing too shabby. And I think he led in hits, runs, no, I'm sorry, runs, doubles, triples, slugging percentage, OPS, hit by pitch, put outs, assists, and a couple of things I can't think of right now. He was a sensational player. People did compare him to Joe DiMaggio, and that was the year DiMaggio hit 56 straight games. And when Stan Musial first hit the majors, people compared him to Pete Reeser. That, that was the, uh, the level uh, Pete was operating at. And he was a much better fielder than Williams and certainly a faster runner and a smarter player, I would say. He had a great arm in center field, covered a lot of ground. I make this point in the book. Not only would he have been a superstar had he stayed healthy, he would have become a central figure in baseball, uh, like in, in baseball history. He was in the right place at the right time, being in New York in the 40s. And he was with the right team, Brooklyn, that was on the ascent. And, you know, the Dodgers, for all the success they did have, they, they could have had another great player for all those years in the 40s and 50s. And maybe they would have, would have won the World Series sooner. Yeah, Pete, I, I think Pete deserves that title of baseball's greatest what if. And I think the a comparison or the fact, the idea that play the teams would choose Reeser over Ted Williams, it may sound far fetched today, but in 1941, right. not so much. Right. And little known fact that top three players for the MVP award in 1941 for the National League were all Brooklyn Dodgers. Dolph Camelli won, won the award with 34 home runs but Pete Reeser came in second and a pitcher Whit Wyatt came in third I mean top three in MVP you know <laughs> that's good Reeser should have won that award though yes After doing all the research he, he, he should have won yes I agree that he, I, he, he was robbed yeah yeah he had so many game-winning hits down the stretch hit 408 in September as the Dodgers were trying to fight off the Cardinals he he should have been the guy agreed maybe because maybe because he was a rookie they they didn't give it to him. Maybe they thought, you know, he'll have other years that he'll possibly get it, especially when you have three players on the same team all battling for the for the award. Agreed. So let's uh, talk about the 1941 season. Obviously, it's a heck of a year for Pete, but a little known tidbit, which I didn't know. Uh, that year, he was beamed early in the season, but they had a little plastic insert. Now, this was the day before the helmet, so he had a little plastic insert in the cap, which doctors said would possibly save his life. Uh, like you said, he had a 343 batting average, the league in runs, stolen bases. Uh, so, And he also had his first major collision with outfield walls. So tell us about that season and for Pete, Pete Reeser. Yeah, and Pete himself said that was the year that like everything went right. And he, it was like he couldn't even pick out a game that was – that stood out. The whole season stood out for him. But that year, yeah, in April he got – hit in the head by a pitch from a Phillies pitcher, Ike Pearson, and suffered his first concussion. Uh, he was in the hospital for several days. He came out, and about two weeks later, he was playing center field, and he went back for a trying to catch a fly ball from the Cardinals' Enos Slaughter, and he hit the center field wall at Ebbets Field. He slammed into, I guess they had, in those days, fans could leave the ballpark by going onto the field. And there was an exit gate in center field and he cut his back 
on a handle or something like that, an iron, some part of an iron gate, opened up a, like a two inch cut in his back. So they had to take him out of the game, went to the hospital, got a tetanus shot. He was out for a few days from that too. Rest of the season he played and he played spectacularly. Uh, there were a lot of games where it was he who delivered the hit in, like, I think there was one against the Reds. They played 17 innings and Pete, or was it 16 innings? And Pete delivered the uh, game when he hit in the 16th. He made the all-star team for the first time, committed two errors in the game. People put that down to nerves. And then other than then in the World Series, in that Mickey Owen game, you know, Reeser put the Dodgers ahead in the fifth inning with a two-run homer that flew over. Field had this gigantic scoreboard. Uh, it was like 35 feet high or something like that. And Pete hit it over the uh, scoreboard. And they would have won the game had Mickey Owen not dropped the the third strike. So it, it was just it was the perfect season for for Pete. Um, and, and the only harbinger of possible bad news was the fact he kept running into his teammates in the outfield. <laughs> he ran into Dixie Walker, I think, three times. Dixie Walker was the right fielder. They ran into him about three times. And Dixie Walker complained to the press. You know, I I yell. I, you know, I tell him I'm here, but he never hears me. So th- th- this turn in, this would turn into a, uh, a problem, especially the following year. Yeah. He played with reckless abandon. We'll, we'll just say that. That 1941 season, they win the pennant. There's a parade for them, mm-hmm. like a ticker tape parade before the World Series. Is that before, how? It- yeah. Yeah. The, the Dod- Brooklyn had not seen a pennant. The Dodgers hadn't won a pennant in 21 years. So there was this utterly insane parade in Brooklyn. I mean, if you watch the newsreel film of it, there have to be a million people in the streets. And it's not an exaggerated million. It has it really looks like a million people. And the cops just can't hold them back. Now they're I mean, they're not they're not trying to tear the players' hair out, but they keep rushing the cars and uh, the, the players are going in a parade down, you know open top convertible cars the and the fans are jumping on the backs of the cars the odorosers you can see say get off kid get off it, it, it's it, and they hadn't won the world series yet they just won the pennant yeah right. that's that's what that's why i was reading i was like and then it, then it said and and now they play the yankees in the world series i'm like well wait <laughs> they they had a big parade and now they play the World Series. I, it, it may be that people the Yankees were so dominant at that time. People thought, okay, they're not they're not going to beat the Yankees. Let's celebrate while we can. That, that's my that's my best yeah. guess at that. He had a, a relationship with Pee Wee Reese. Could you tell us about that that relationship? Yeah, they were uh, best buddies. In they met during the 1940 season, which was both both the year they they came up. And in 41, they started rooming together in spring training, and then they became, you know, road roommates, and they shared an apartment at a hotel in Brooklyn during the season. And for that that year, they were pretty much inseparable. All all the uh, the press reports said they people called them the Gold Dust Twins. Although to be honest, Pete Reeser was having a, a fantastic year. That was the year Pee Wee Reese really struggled. He almost lost his spot on the team. He hit just 229. And was making he made something like forty seven errors. It, he was not the Pee Wee Reese that people remember later on. But the but Derosier stuck with him in the lineup because the Dodgers were winning. So he figured, why change it? Yeah, they were very close friends. And then the following year, 
both of them got married on back-to-back days in Florida and they served as each other's best man. They, they were close friends for a long time until probably like sometime early after in the post-war years. And then I think they just kind of, you know, they stayed friends, but they, they weren't as close as time went right. by. I think Pee Wee uh, ended up going into the Navy and, and uh, for that time, uh, mm-hmm. Pee Wee Reese, of course, for anyone who's listening, who doesn't realize Hall of Famer Pee Wee Reese, quite, quite the amazing player. I mean, that, that team that the Brooklyn Dodgers became over the years with uh, just an amazing team. Of course, they added Jackie Robinson, which you talk about later in the book. I'm, I'm going ahead, so I shouldn't be, but what a team. I mean, they just became, you know, you talk about in the beginning, they were called dem bums. Mm-hmm. Some people angrily, some people affectionately, but they certainly made up for those those lack of uh, pennant winning years with some incredible years. And, the, and then, you know, the year after they won the pennants, they were actually a better team. They they won 104 games, but the Cardinals won 106. So and in those days, if you, you know, if you didn't finish first. No wild card. Right. No, <laughs> no three divisions. No wild card. I mean, no. 19, 1941 Dodgers, the names on it, you know. Mickey Owen, Billy Herman, Pee Wee Reese, Cookie Lavagetto, Joe Medwick, Dixie Walk, and Pete Reese. That was a, a heck of a team. Yeah. A team. And that was before, you know, as Len was saying, Jackie Robinson, Gil Hodges, Roy Campanella, all those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Pete got, he got along with Leo DeRocha. They had a very good relationship. So Pete was Leo's type of player, wasn't he? He really was. You know, DeRocha, and uh, I'm, I'm assuming people listening to this are at least vaguely familiar with Leo DeRocha. He really liked hard-nosed, hustling players who didn't mind busting their butt or busting their brains even for the sake of a win. And Pete Reeser was that kind of guy. He didn't mind getting into scrapes on the field. He didn't mind getting hit by a pitch. Because Leo Drocher as a player had been this kind of kind of a, of a player. But it, it, in the long run, Pete Reeser probably took it to far, far beyond where he should have gone. You know, he, he, he wasn't just a Pete Rose type of player because Pete Rose played very aggressively, but as you said, Pete played with reckless, played with reckless abandon. Exactly. You have a a page in the book dedicated to pistol Pete versus the wall. And (laughs) (laughs) he ran into it uh, a few times. The first time was 1941, twice in 1942. Then he gets into the army. From 1943 to 1945, he has an incident, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, in 1945, where in the Army, he actually runs into a wall or, or go into a ditch, and then three times after the war. Let's talk about the war for a second. He lost three prime years to World War II at Fort Riley, where he met another St. Louis native, uh, Joe Gavragiola. Mm-hmm. He played on the Army baseball team, but Pete was prone to accidents and getting hurt. He was had a car accident, he had pneumonia, he had stomach issues. And in Fort Lee, in, I mean, in camp, when he got to Camp Lee, he's running hard after the ball, hurt his shoulder, falling into a ditch. This guy gets no no breaks at all, doesn't he? <laughs> no, no. He he uh, he got no breaks, but he brought a lot of that. Not all of it, but he brought a lot of his injuries on himself because during the war years, he's playing army ball for fifty dollars per month. He's playing to crowds of like maybe you know one thousand, two thousand, maybe four thousand at most in small ballparks in Kansas, Louisiana, Virginia, 
there was no reason for him to go at his usual 125% intensity, but he couldn't play any other way. There are so many witnesses who say he could not turn it off. And during one of these games, 1945 at Camp Lee, Virginia, he's chasing after either a pop fly or a fly ball. And this is not a real ballpark he's playing in. It's, It's a field basically. And there was either a hedge or some sort of flimsy fence uh, outlining the field and he charged right through this fence and there was a drainage ditch on the other side of the fence that was somewhere between 10 and 25 feet deep depending on the telling and he plunged right into that and he came out with a really bad shoulder injury and he he kind of rested it for a few months hoping that it would just sort of you know naturally heal but when he got to the Dodgers the following spring they x-rayed it and they found out he had a separated shoulder now, today, you know, a, uh, a team, upon learning its star player had a separated shoulder, would put him right into surgery and, you know, let him recover. But, in, you know, it's funny. In 1946, the, car, the Dodgers didn't like the idea of their players getting surgery. They feared that you know, Pete would lose his ability to throw altogether. So he played that whole 46 season with a separated shoulder, which just seems utterly insane. He 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 complained about the pain all year long, but the Dodgers wouldn't approve the surgery. It just goes to show you it was a completely different attitude. Yeah. Alien to, to the 21st century. And let's make no mistake, Pete Reza had a hell of an arm. He was throwing out guys from the outfield at home plate, at third base, making great throws. I mean, he was a defensive wizard out there. In, in his in the 41 season, he led the National League, he led National League outfielders in assists. He was known for, you know, a guy you don't, you're not supposed to run on. And what's even, uh, even crazier is that in, in 46, with his separated shoulder, he was still able to throw guys out. But he said after he would make the throw, the arm would be dead for a half an hour. Right. Until he, he, uh, he felt like he could, he could even throw overhand again. Now, he should not have been in the Army, and that's stated in the book. And there's several times where he thought he was going to get discharged. But of course, the issue that you have one time, somebody said, well, if you're discharged and you go home, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to play center field for the Dodgers. Well, if you could play center field for the Dodgers, you can you could be in the military. I mean, if you're healthy enough mm-hmm. to play center field for the Dodgers, then I guess you're healthy enough to be in the military. So it was a, it was a different way of looking at things. But. He apparently, the concussion that he suffered from that first time running into the wall, by the way, again, we have, you know, some people uh, may not be familiar with what the wall was, but it was brick, right? It was a brick wall. They weren't padded at the time. There was no padding. So he ran into a brick wall. He suffered a severe concussion and he had dizzy spells. And this is what he went into the military with. Yeah, in mid-season 42, when Pete, well, he was, he had reached an even a higher peak than 41. He was hitting a, uh, over 350. He was, again, leading the National League in several categories. He had a higher batting average than Ted Williams, in fact, at that point in 42. But and the Dodgers were in first place. They were playing a game in St. Louis. And Pete, it was the, it was the 12th inning, I think, and the score was tied. Enos Slaughter, the Cardinals, hit a long fly ball to center field. Pete chased after it with his, you know, kind of no-holds-barred style and slammed right into the center field wall. 
which Lynn, as you pointed out, was unpadded. There was, in fact, there was no warning track. There was no right. padding on the wall. And there was a flagpole right in front of center field, which Pete had to dodge on his way to the wall. But he slammed into the wall. He didn't, he got his glove on the ball, didn't catch it. And he hit his head against the wall and gave himself a good, nasty concussion. Somehow he was able to throw it back in to the to Pee Wee Reese, and they almost caught Slaughter at the plate, but Slaughter did get in inside the park homer. So after that, they took Pete to the hospital, and this was the real turning point in his career. And I don't want to give away too much because it's in the book, but he had a concussion and he tried to play for the rest of the season. And his batting average, which had been in the 350, 360 range, steadily declined because he was trying to play through headaches and dizziness and double vision. And the Cardinals wound up losing the pennant. And Pete always kind of blamed himself for the rest of his life. He thought if if he had just sat out and let let a healthy man play, the the Dodgers would have hung on. But DeRocher wanted him in there and Pete wanted to be in there. So they went ahead and did it. And then, yeah, as you said, he shouldn't have been in the army after that. He was still having headaches and dizziness, you know, that winter. And he had had other injuries too in in the 42 season. He had some torn ligaments in his side and his leg. But the army's attitude was, you know, if you're healthy enough to play baseball, of course you can be a soldier. Or at least at minimum, you can play baseball for us instead. So, Pete, it it really led to a little bit of long-term resentment or bitterness even because he was just starting to make good money. And instead, he had to spend three years in the Army earning $50 a month. Yeah. You mentioned there was no warning track. Could it be said that Pete's contribution and legacy to the game was the warning track was installed because of Pete Reza? Oh, yes. Actually, did you see there was an article on MLB.com about two weeks ago? where Anthony Castro Vince, he wrote an article about Reeser and his legacy to baseball. And basically that is the legacy. He, he's the reason the walls got padded. He's the reason the warning track was installed because the Dodgers, after Pete hit the wall for the sixth or seventh time, they finally padded the walls at Ebbets field in Brooklyn. And then later on when they were in Los Angeles, Pete was a coach with the team and the Dodgers were building Dodger stadium for the book, I found a newspaper article where the Dodgers GM was talking and they said, we, you know, we remembered what happened to Pete Reeser. And so we chose to build this stadium with a plywood wall instead of one made out of concrete or brick. And Pete actually examined the wall when it was done and said, you know, if this was what I played with, I wouldn't have gotten injured. because right. uh, He would have run through it. He would have run through it, right. <laughs> You know, we, we said that uh, he had a great relationship with Leo DeRosha, but not a great relationship with Brent Tricky, which is what I got out of the book. You know, not 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 revealing too much because you have to read it. Why wasn't his relationship with Brent Tricky any better? Ricky, you know, he took over the Dodgers in 1942, took over as GM. And Pete was, he was drafted right around the same time, went off into the Army for three years. And while he was in the Army, he asked the Dodgers for money because he was having some personal difficulties and he wasn't earning a salary at this point. And the Dodgers did advance him some money, but then he asked for more. And Branch Rickey wrote him a kind of a nasty letter back, you know, accusing him of heavy drinking. And I don't know why Ricky said that. And to the best of my knowledge, that wasn't true. But from that point on, their relationship was not that great. And, and every year they had a battle over salary. 
And uh, at one point, Pete, in 1946, Pete threatened to jump to the Mexican League, which is sort of a, a rival upstart league. Uh, the Mexican League offered him $100,000. Ricky um, rushed to St. Louis, where the Dodgers were playing, to try to talk Pete out of that. And then they also had issues over Pete's health because Pete wanted to get his shoulder fixed and Ricky was against that. Eventually, Pete did get his shoulder fixed. Uh, but then the Dodgers evermore seemed to be impatient when Pete was taking time to recover from other injuries. In 48, he had bone chips in his ankle and had to sit out a few weeks then. And, and Ricky just was wondering, what's taking so long? Why aren't you playing? But Pete was in pain. You know, he uh, today they, they have more than x-rays that you could take a CAT scan or an MRI and the Dodgers could see, OK, this is where the fracture is, or this is, you know, he, he really is hurt. He really needs to rest. But back in those days, you know, a, a player would say he was injured. And unless there was a broken bone that the Dodgers could see on an x-ray, I, I think the, the attitude was, we're paying you. You better get back out there. The book is we, called. We are, oh, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, we are talking to author Dan Joseph. And he has written Baseball's Greatest What If, the story and tragedy of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Pistol Pete Reeser. And the reason I was going to say it is because, Dan, you did say something. You said, you know, you don't want to reveal everything. It's in the book. Well, I'm going to tell everyone that we're not even scratching the surface because Dan has done, as I as I like to say, the heavy lifting. The book is fantastic. And I think the, the reason that Jeff and I are asking you so many questions is we enjoyed the book so much that we, we read the whole thing. We read it cover to cover and it's just, it's that good. It's, and it's, you fit a lot into this book. It has so much baseball history and it's really about someone that people don't hear about. I mean, they, but you bring up a perfect example of, of, in, in this book, you bring up a Marvel movie and when yeah. Captain America is Captain America, right? He, mm-hmm. he wakes up in, in this movie and a lot of people will know the movie we're referring to. And they want him to think that he hasn't woken up 60 years later and that he's currently, you know, back during the time and they play the grand slam, the inside the park grand slam pistol pete hit and they play that and that's that was fascinating to learn that uh i mean it's just so many things in this book so again we we could talk on and on and on and we still would would barely scratch the surface dan excellent job thank you very much and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna tell people you said that (laughs) you you do that (laughs) (laughs) and we all know the date April 15th, 1947. That's the day Jackie Robinson breaks into the major league with the Brooklyn Dodgers. He plays first base, 11 putouts, no errors, scored the go-ahead run on the, in the Dodgers' victory that day. But Pete Reeser gets all the headlines. That is very strange when I read it. When I read that in your book, I'm going, that is very strange. Yeah, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, Pete was, obviously, he was a, a well-known, familiar uh, figure to the New York press, and he did have the game-winning RBI double in that opening day victory for the Dodgers. 
but it does seem strange from the remove of almost, well, let's see, 75 years that the press would choose to focus on Reeser instead of Robinson in you know Robinson's debut. And I think that must have been because of discomfort with uh, the idea that a black man was playing Major League Baseball or to be more generous, it could have been that they were just trying to take the pressure off Robinson. That's another possibility. But, you know, Pete was he was all for Jackie Robinson joining the Dodgers, unlike some of his teammates who like Dixie Walker, who started a petition during spring training to keep Robinson off the team. Those guys went to Reeser and asked him to sign the petition. They thought, well, he's from Missouri. That's kind of like the South, you know, so he'll sign it. But he said no. And Pee Wee Reese said no. And the uh, petition never got anywhere. And, but, you know, one of the th- things I found in the book that was that from the start, from the minute Jackie signed with the uh, Dodgers in 1945, Pete was like, you know, if he can do it, more power to him. He he was all for giving Robinson a chance, at least. And then while well, he couldn't really say he was friends with Robinson, he was at least friendly to Robinson during that 47 season. And ironically, when Pete went down that season with another, after hitting the wall again, it was Robinson who kind of stepped into his role as the spark plug of the offense. In, in, in baseball terms, on the field, they were pretty similar players. Absolutely. You, you have a chapter we, we touched on before called The Other, Other Great What Ifs. A couple of guys I never heard of, Charlie Ferguson and Cecil Travis, which way before our time. But there are, and there are other ones who, who I've heard of, but there's two that I want to mention. And you mentioned one earlier, J.R. Richard. But the other one was Mark with the Bird Fidrich. I remember these guys. These guys were what are you, like a shooting star. They were just, mm-hmm. uh, they, they just came by so fast. Uh, Mark Fidrich was unbelievable. And so was J.R. Richard. And it's just, it's just so tragic that they could not play you know, and, and longer than they did. Yeah. I, I liked, uh, frankly, my favorite one to write was the one about Charlie Ferguson, who I'm sure 99% of your listeners have no idea. Yes. You know, right. Talking about it's fascinating. Tell yeah. us about him. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Uh, Ferguson played in the 1880s for the Philadelphia Phillies. And he was a two-way player. He pitched and played second base. His last season, 1887, I think he hit 340 or so, 330, 340, drove in 85 runs and just in like 300 at-bats. And he also won 22 games on the mound. The year before, he had won 30. He was really, really good. He pitched no-hitter. He pitched both games of the doubleheader and won both ends. And then he died of typhoid. He was only like 25 years old. He could have been the Shohei Otani of of the 1880s had he... And he lived. And then, uh, there are other what-if stories that are fun. Uh, Cecil Travis, great Washington senator, shortstop. He had just turned into a superstar, hit 359 in 1941. Actually, in Pete's big year, 41, Cecil Travis had an almost equally spectacular year. But then, like Pete, he got drafted, missed four years, came back, just wasn't the same player, although he didn't run into walls or anything like that. He just uh, he couldn't seem to get back in shape after the war. And he had, and he fought in the Battle of the Bulge and he had frozen feet. So, yeah, there, there are definitely other great what if stories. Josh Hamilton more recently uh, with his drug and alcohol problems. Mm-hmm. But I still think Pete was the best of the right. what if players. 
Is is Ike Davis a, a what if? Eric Davis? No, Ike Davis. I, um, Ike Davis. Well, Jeff, I, I guess Ike Davis, he was uh, on the Mets. I only I refer to him because uh, I was trying to think as I'm I'm reading and you're you must have gone through a lot to get to these what ifs. And I was trying to think, what is a what if that might be on the Mets? Ike was Davis was a, was a player in, you know, several years ago. Uh, he led he led the uh, Mets in one year with like 29 home runs. And then he he bumped into. David Wright playing third. He was playing. Ike Davis was first baseman. It was very weird. He just bumped into him, and then he just he hurt his foot, and it was never the same after that. It was just like a simple bump. So I guess that's what Len is referring yeah, to. Yeah, that's it's a you know an injury. He was he he had an amazing year. So I don't know if he would have continued. With, and then I think he I think didn't he get like jungle fever or something when he, he came did. back? And yeah, yeah. I'd, ha- I'd have to do some research into this. I, I frankly did not consider Ike Davis as a possibility for the what if chapter, but you know, in a, in a future edition, I could throw him in. <laughs> well, you come on baseball and barbecue, you know, we got to know something. <laughs> <laughs> so after, uh, so he, after the Dodgers, he goes on to the, uh, the Brook, the uh, Boston, he goes to Boston Braves and then Pittsburgh, and then ends his career in Cleveland. Really, not—he's a shell of himself at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he play, uh, sports writer said he was helped to he was held together by tape and bale wire. Yeah. By that point, he just yeah. I'll tell you, by by that point in his career, he had had at least four or five concussions, two broken ankles. He dislocated one shoulder. He separated the other. He, I, he could barely walk, I think, some days. Right. Well, and then afterwards, though, he gets into uh, – he, he stays in baseball, though. He becomes a minor league manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Leo DeRocha brings him to the major leagues as a coach for the Cubs when he – I'm not sure if I have the timeline right there, but I know he goes to the Cubs with the co- coaching. But before – he was actually – first he was a coach with the Dodgers in L.A. under Walter Alston. Okay. And then they fired him after they fired the whole coaching staff staff, uh, after the 64 season. But then DeRocher brought him to Chicago like a year and a half later. Right. And I think you you spoke to his son-in-law when you wanted to ask him about the 1969 season. So (laughs) what what kind of reaction did you get? (laughs) Well, so Pete was a coach on the 69 Cubs. And, you know, he got a lot of credit for helping a couple of the Cubs players, I think Glenn Beckard and Don Kessinger in particular, to uh, become better hitters. And he served as kind of Leo's lieutenant on the team. And when DeRocher went went AWOL in that famous incident midseason when he flew up to a summer camp, skipped a game, Pete Reeser took over as the Cubs manager, and, uh, the, and the Cubs won that day. But, you know, the Cubs got off to a fantastic start in 69, and everyone thought they were going to win the pennant. And yeah, I brought this up to his daughter, actually. And as soon as I brought that up, she said to me, oh, don't talk about that. Because she didn't want to didn't want to relive the memory of, of the Cubs collapsing. But, you know, Pete saw as early as I think June of 69, he said, you know, we're going great. But this team, I don't know, this this may not last because he just had a feeling that they the Cubs weren't as good as they were playing over their heads. Uh, and they had some holes in the team, and it turned out he was totally right. And and it, it just occurred to me that he was a coach on the Cubs in '69, where his 
teammate, 1947, Gil Hodges was the manager of the Mets uh, yeah. in that, that year. So how was their relationship like? I mean, I don't think you mentioned it much in the book, but uh, did they? I'm sure they got along pretty well. Hodges and Reeser? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they were only teammates probably for about a year, year okay. and a half total. So I don't think, and as far as I know, they got along fine, but right. uh, I don't think they had any, any particular, you know, special relationship. Gotcha. Reeser was still in his early, well, no, in his late 20s. I guess when he, yeah, because he started at 22, played t- two seasons, then three years in the military. I mean, he was basically, I think he was like 29 when he was done with baseball, right, as a player? 33. Yeah, 33. Oh, 33, 33. He, 33, he was sorry, done sorry. as a regular right. by the time he was 28. 29, right. That's what I, yeah. but then he, right, he did go to write to those other teams, the Braves and the Indians. And of course, and that for our, for, for the Indian fans, that's, that's where you go to, I guess that's where you went to end your career. <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, one, one, one final question. And I think it's, this is a no brainer. If he was to avoid all the injuries and ailments, no doubt walking in hall of fame. I think so. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, based on what he actually accomplished, I don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Some people might argue he, he you know, should even go in based on what he did. I don't think he's quite up to that standard, but I think there's no doubt. He had Hall of Fame talent. And if you look at that 41 season, it's covered in black ink when you look at it on yes, baseball reference. He, absolutely. In 42, he was doing every bit as well, if not better. So I, I think he would have been a Hall of Famer had he just, you know, used had a little more common sense and stayed away from the walls. Yes. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for joining us. The book is fantastic. Amazon, any place else you can get it? Local bookstore? Uh, well, it's, it's published by Sunbury Press, so you can order directly from their website. But you can probably order it through Barnes & Noble, too, or Amazon. And it's on Kindle, so you know you can get that version as well. It's a fantastic book. Love the book. Love the book. Dan, you are terrific. What's next? I'm starting work on a, a book about a, a famous Pittsburgh sportscaster, the guy who the voice of the Steelers for about 35 years, a guy named Myron Cope, who was a legendary, not, not just announcer, but a legendary personality and character, and also a Sports Illustrated writer, uh, among other magazines. Uh, I'm just beginning on that one, though. Well, I'm sure it's going to be just as fantastic as the other two books that you've written in sports. Dan, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're really welcome. My thank pleasure. You. A lot of fun. Thank you, Dan Joseph. You know, Jeff, I I was kidding, of course, we, we know, but when, I mean, the work that goes into writing this book, imagine, I got to speak to Jeff and Len. I got to write another book. I'm telling you, Dan, just pick up the phone and call us. We will answer. But that whole thing with Pistol Pete, he's somebody you don't know. Although, you know, you don't know him, of course, but that Marvel episode, the movie that he mentions in the book and the movie, I remember seeing that. And I remember seeing when he wakes up and hearing that, you know, that radio broadcast. So that that was kind of neat how those things uh, tied together. Yes. And if you have any comments about Pete Reeser or Dan Joseph or anything, any of our guests, give us a call. Yeah, our Hall of Fame talk, too. Our Hall of Fame talk, too. 516-855-8214.
Email us, baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. Leave a comment. Tweet us, Twitter, at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. And our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And as always, Len? Rate and review us. And Jeff, here's another thing. We've had numerous guests who, whether we're recording or we've stopped recording, we we have spoken about these players who are not in the Hall of Fame because of PEDs. And some of these guests have expressed quite vehemently that they don't care about the, B, the PEDs. They think they should be in. You gave the information to contact the show. I think that is a big, the Hall of Fame and these PED users and Kurt Schilling being out because basically of what he said out of the game, I think is a big, is big controversy. So if anybody feels they want to, you know, give us a call, Jeff gave the information. So please do so. Jeff, who's next on the show? We have Denny Mikes, who makes a great line of, of rubs and sauces. And we also have with him, he brought along barbecue hall of famer and Artie Davis. And here is part one of, Denny Mike and Artie Davis. Baseball and barbecue listeners, you are in for a big treat. Baseball is all about baseball. Barbecue, as I say baseball. (laughs) Barbecue is all about relationships. One of the things we love about barbecue is it brings people together. Well, this podcast has enabled us to get to this point. We had on Sean Ludwig and Ryan Cooper. They introduced us to the wonderful products of Denny Mike, which we will go into. We booked Denny Mike, who has an incredible company with his rubs. We're going to get all into that. And Denny says to us, I have somebody I'd like you to have on. Little did we know that as baseball is to Babe Ruth, barbecue is to this man. Artie Davis is the second guest on this show. He is a Hall of Famer. We love having Hall of Famers on. It is a rarity. And Denny, Mike, and Artie Davis, we are extremely thrilled to welcome the two of you to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome. And really, thank you for having us, guys. You know, it's 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 a really it's a special treat for me, and I know Artie's been excited about this since I uh, reached out to him, and uh, I think we're going to have fun tonight. Yeah, yeah. I, I really liked seeing your website. That really made me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we we've been doing this now for um, we celebrated our four year anniversary. And anytime you think it it can't get any better, it gets better. And I think tonight we've we've reached another drop the mic moment. So I always defer. <laughs> I defer to Jeff because I have something uh, d- running mouth. And uh, <laughs> but okay, all right, let's start. So that's so strange in barbecue. We never have that. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, we're going to start with you. All right. You've got a great company. Your company is Denny Mike's. It you, is. You, you, you were nice enough to send us the rubs, which Jeff and I have been using. Jeff, actually, we're going to pull back the curtain a little here. Jeff's 
kitchen is undergoing some major renovation. Yes, I've I've been grilling (laughs) an awful lot. And the seasoning of choice is Denny Mike's. I mean, when I started with with Sublime Swine for our pork chops and the uh, chick magnet for our chicken, my wife was going, wow, this is great. This tastes great. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't tell her I was changing anything different. So she just uh, loved it. So I got her approval. (laughs) So I know it's good. (laughs) I love to hear that. And generally, that's what I want to hear, Jeff, is because if the lady of the house approves, guess what? I own you. <laughs> I own you. And then even better, if I get the kids first and they say, oh, mom, dad, you got to try this stuff. You know, it's like, hey, man, look, look this kid doesn't eat. A, you know, he's the pickiest eater on the planet. I don't know how you got him to eat this stuff. So anyway, that's uh, thank you for that. That's uh, um, I always appreciate hearing uh, the, the, that my products are well received. Yeah, the, before I ask you about it, just to tell you, even tonight, my wife, she actually, she said, you could probably use this in your advertising. She said, it makes putting dinner on the table extremely easy. <laughs> oh, boy, I tell you, I like that. I mean, I'm a nut for uh, trademark and stuff, so it makes putting dinner uh, on the table easy. I said, I like that. So this is what we had for dinner tonight. We had chicken thighs. She cut up some potatoes. Put some on a, a sheet pan. She put on the chick magnet, your your chick magnet rub. Brilliant. She used that on the chicken thighs and on the potato. And then the potato was sitting in the same pan. So it was also getting some of the grease and fat and whatever from the chicken. It crisped up and it oh, was excellent. Oh. And then she made some uh, cabbage. She roasted some cabbage and she put on. The fish rub. Fantastic. Yes. Which it says on the on the <laughs> bottle, I think, or on your website, can be used on fish and on vegetables and when pickling. And it was on the cabbage and it was awesome. So, Denny, because I'm getting hungry again, talk <laughs> about the, the company, the concept. You know, the rub market is obviously, there's a lot of rubs in it. What got you started and how's it going? Well, you know, it's a, it's an interesting story. It's like, you know, and I'll, I'll preface by saying it's a good thing I didn't know then what I know now. You know, the old saw, right? It's like, holy cow, man, I didn't realize it was so straight uphill. But uh, fortunately, uh, after 20 some odd years of perseverance, uh, you know, I'm still standing and uh, still uh, being able to listen to guys like you stalling uh, the virtues of my product. So now to get back to uh, the uh, genesis, et cetera, I basically am self-taught barbecue. I had bought a uh, joint in my hometown of Old Orchard Beach, Maine. Seven Mile Sandy Beach Summer Resort. Basically, we always uh, grew up referring to it as the Canadian Riviera. We were only about, oh, I don't know, 150 miles or so or 250 miles from Montreal. And Quebec's only another uh, 150 miles or so west of that. So uh, the Canadians, as we affectionately refer to them, come down every summer. I had a, um, uh, I was also uh, in the real estate business then. There was a building that basically I was talked into buying 
Actually, I take that back. I wasn't in the real estate business then. I had been in it and got out, gotten out of it because it was so up and down, typically. But I bought this building, which was a real beater, a fixer-upper. And I said, it had a little uh, takeout joint in the bottom, an apartment up above. And I uh, set about to uh, rehab in it to sell. And in the process, uh, I put in a uh, barbecue joint because I said, okay, if I'm going to have some kind of joint uh, or some kind of uh, retail uh, it's got to be different than than, it, than than what everybody else down the street has, which is just burgers and and, uh, and pizza and French fries and things like that. So I said, there, there is no barbecue. And uh, that'll kind of set the, the backdrop, really, of the difficulty I didn't realize I was about to face. Because there was no barbecue in the Northeast back then, some 20, you know, really as recently as 25 years ago. Not to say that there's a great deal of it today, but Artie can attest uh, when he'd say, Denny Mike, can you recommend any places for us? We're coming up. Well, I'm sorry, Artie, I'll tell you what, bring some with you. But getting back to the story, I said, I, you know, I think I want to do a barbecue joint course not knowing the first thing about barbecue I mean, all i knew about barbecue was having tasted it at, at my buddy's ranch in uh, houston texas whom i went to school with in old mexico back in the mid-70s i tasted texas style dry rub brisket for the first time and i was bit i was absolutely smitten with barbecue and they i you know i really I would, uh, you know, that was my epiphany. So I said, I want to do this. And uh, I asked my buddies if, uh, you know, they'd teach me how to do barbecue. And they said, no. Nope. I said, well, thanks a lot. <laughs> you ain't going to know how to do barbecue, man. You got to grow up with it or some such thing as that. They weren't really all that forthcoming. I can say that. And they're good buddies. But fortunately, it forced me into putting my nose in some books, which I did. And and uh, Artie, one of, Artie was one of the authors, along with his co-conspirator, uh, uh, Paul Kirk, the Kansas City barbecue bear, uh, baron of barbecue. Actually, it was Paul's book by himself, Sauces, Slathers, and Rubs. And I got my nose in that. I read it from uh, start to finish. And uh, basically, uh, Paul Kirk, I, I will point to to this day, as being my mentor and the guy that really got me started in this game. He spoke very, very clearly to me in that book, told me what to, you know, what, what to avoid, what to kind of pay attention to. And I set about to making myself my first sauce. My original, actually, my, my first was my sweet and spicy. And it was... Of course, to me, the tomato-based sauces. I said, well, you can't. I, well, I tried the um, ridiculous idea of selling one sauce, being a one-trick pony. Guess what? You need to have a trio. You need to have a kind of a spread here, guy. You know, we gotta, you know, if we're going to carry you, you need to be, you know, load us up. Well, these are all the learning, uh, you know, curves I'm going through, but Anyway, I, I quickly progressed into adding a smoky, which I call Mesquite Madness, and then a uh, habanero spiced hot and nasty sauce, 
And then the rub development began because you had sauces. Well, you got to have, you know, the precursor, really. I've always maintained the real essence of barbecue is in the rub. It's in the flavor. It's in what you impart before the cook and during the cook, of course. But it just that magic of, of, of uh, bringing uh, flavor into it. So anyway, that was the way when it began 20 years ago and then kind of just stumbly bumbling around. You know, I developed a business. I developed a very, uh, you know, loyal following. It's uh, quite a cultish following, I'm, I'm quick to say. I really felt I wasn't really strongly capitalized, as most small producers are. And I quickly learned that trying to do business with grocery retail was like playing with the devil. Danny, devil. I'm going to stop you right there. Because I have a lot of questions. Okay, pardon me. I will. I will get a little. I have black, a lot of you know, questions. Where you're going? But, but I want to just now. I want to switch over to Artie. Okay, um, Artie, you. If I say, I I can't see you. We're on a Zoom, but you have the option of calling in, and I can't see you. And so I don't know if this will make you blush, but you are <laughs> what I would consider barbecue royalty. Okay. Really? Um, well, I'm blushing. <laughs> okay. You were inducted into the Barbecue Hall of Fame in 2016. Now, you're a writer. You're a judge. I mean, you wrote the, the, the rules for the, for the KCBS, the judging rules. Let's start at the beginning. or let's, where, where did you first get your love from, of barbecue? Okay, Ellie, it, it goes back to childhood in Oklahoma. That's where I was raised. And, of course, Oklahoma and Texas are always rivals as to who has the best. I'd have to say, honestly, I love both. Uh, Texas barbecue, some of the best in the world, likewise in Oklahoma. My dad built his own barbecue pit. He was a body man and then later a painter in cars, Lincoln Mercury. And... He built it brick by brick, traded some of the work for the hood and everything with other people who had the skill to make it. He used a tire jack to raise the fire bed up and down. That's what got me hooked. We would have neighbors and relatives over on the weekend. My dad had to work till noon on Saturday, so it would usually be a Saturday night. And the camaraderie of of, uh, people eating together hooked me, but the flavor of the barbecue, as Denny Mike was saying, that that really is a hook. From there, I worked in New York City for several years at downtown at William Sloan House, YMCA. And of course, back, yes, 9th Avenue and 34th Street, which is now a condo. My background is in philosophy and sociology. And I uh, took a job with the Y there using the New York City as a classroom for college groups. We would set up any kind of program you wanted. I could go into great detail with that, but I won't. This was back when Hare was on Broadway. So, of course, the groups that wanted something about the arts would get tickets to Hare, and then they'd get to go backstage and meet the crew there. And they would go from there to off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. A lot of contrast. It was a lot of fun. But a friend from graduate school had invited me for a job here in Kansas City. And 
our daughter was getting toward kindergarten age. And at that time in New York City, public schools weren't as good as they are now. We thought, well, this is a good time to, to leave. We moved to Kansas City. Of course, the job fell through, didn't know a soul, no friends, no relatives. My friend who brought me here got a job in St. Louis. But it was a very fortunate thing for us. We now feel like Kansas City's our home. Long story short, if we had a babysitting pool in New York, and some of the babysitting people thought we were way out in the wasteland, but one couple decided to come and visit us. And his name was Cliff Rosenthal, and he had been reading Calvin Trillin and about Arthur Bryant's, and he asked me if I'd ever been to Arthur Bryant's. I didn't even know a thing about it. So we went and fell in love with Arthur Bryant's barbecue right away. He was from Texas. Beef and fries, you really get hooked. Arthur had a, or Mr. Bryant had a vinegar-based sauce, very grainy. And at first taste, I didn't care much for it. But fortunately, I bought a bottle to bring home. And because later that night, I started craving that sauce. I don't know why, but I did. And I was glad I had some, and I had some leftover beef. That got me hooked on Kansas City barbecue. And then one summer when my wife and kids were visiting relatives in Minnesota, I was home feeling sorry for myself and listening to Fry Cooter, Paradise and Lunch, reading Jane and Michael Stern's road food book. They had 80-some barbecue places in there. And I thought, well, I could never go to these places, but I could at least write to them and see if I could get their sauce and get a little idea of what, what, what they're like. I started doing that. Then I decided, well, I'm going to make it into a contest because why go to all the trouble of getting all those sauces without having a contest? So that's what I did. And is that the Diddy got... Wah Diddy? Yeah, that's the right. Diddy Wah was... Diddy. I feel like that's a song. <laughs> Do Wah Diddy. Is. Right? <laughs> well, a lot of people think of the, of the Do Wah Diddy, but they're actually on the album Paradise and Lunch, Ry Cooter sings Diddy Wah Diddy. Wow. A song that was uh, composed by Blind Blake and sung by him. And Ry Cooter sounds a lot like Blind Blake when he sings that song. So I said, well, why not ma- name it the Diddy Wah Diddy National Barbecue Sauce Contest? So I did. We did that. We had friends and a few relatives. My wife's brother came. He was a CPA and he did the computing of the scores. We had more than 100 sauces. We're, we're in a little house here in Kansas City. That was in My your backyard, said, that, right? Yeah, that's right. In, the, in, 19, in 1984, right? That's right. And wow. my wife said, well, that was fun, but this place is too little for this kind of thing. Why don't you do a fundraiser? So we had enjoyed many hikes in the Prairie Center outside of Olathe, which is near Kansas City. And I talked to the the proprietors there and they said yeah we need to raise some money so let's let's do it here so we did it there then a friend who sports writer working for the kansas city star said how about doing it at crown center for the ms society i said why not so third year it was at crown center that's the sports editor joe mcguff was one of the judges and he said you know these styrofoam cups don't that just doesn't hack it. You've got, it's just not safe enough. You need some squeeze bottles. 
And ever since then, we've used the the kind of squeeze bottles you see on barbecue tables, barbecue restaurant tables. Mm -hmm. So it's safer. And then I had set the date for the contest to not conflict with the American Royal. Well, lo and behold, the American Royal took my contest date. So I called them and I said, you know, I purposely set this to not conflict with you guys. So what are we going to do? And they said, well, you call Jack K. He's the chair of the American Royal barbecue contest. So I called Jack. We met at a Chili's over some ribs and talked for an hour and finally decided, let's just marry the two contests. So we did. And so that year, the fourth year was the American Royal barbecue contest and the Diddy Wah Diddy national barbecue sauce contest. After that, they said, well, you know, Diddy Wah Diddy sounds too serious. Let's just name the whole thing American Royal. I mean, it I, sounds too serious. <laughs> <laughs> so ever since then, it's been the American Royal <laughs> barbecue sauce and rub contest. And now it's American Royal, American Royal World Series of Barbecue International Barbecue Sauce and Rub Contest because it's now open to sauces from anywhere. It's like the Rose Bowl, so, the big daddy of them all. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's a lot of fun, and we we always attract a microcosm of the barbecue consumer public to judge the sauces and the rubs, and you know it's it's good bragging rights if you win. It's a lot of work, as as Denny Mike was saying. He didn't know what he was getting into. I didn't either, but I finally said, you know, this contest has to have its own legs. I'll be glad to come and swear in the judges and that kind of thing, but. Uh, we need some help. And so now the American Royal staff does the lion's share of the work. We still have some volunteers, but I have it easy. I can come in and swear the swear in the judges, give them an orientation, and I'm done. Really happy that it's it's grown the way it has. That opened all kinds of doors to barbecue for me. So I won't, I'll do a little bit of name dropping. Got me on Willie Nelson's Honeysuckle too, I guess, wrote Honeysuckle Rose Bus. Really? And yeah. Judging, I was invited to judge Ribs in uh, Cleveland, and he was the featured entertainer that, that night at this national rib contest. Doc Gillis and Joe Phelps with the Barbecue News were judging also, and they asked the organizer, do you think we could get, a, get to meet Willie? And they said, sure, we'll set that up. Well, we waited an hour outside that bus. Of course, we sent ribs in ahead of time, and uh, he was uh, enjoying ribs and uh, taking an appetite enhancer at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, we, he enjoyed we, a lot of ribs. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> he's just so down to earth. We really, I mean, it's a priceless moment. I told him this true story about it woman I met in uh, Hutchinson, Kansas. I was working in the Department on Aging, and she was in one of the aging offices, and she said she was a big fan of Willie, and she'd gone to one of his concerts at the State Fair. He would throw out his bandana, you know, his head thing that he wrapped around his head, and then he'd throw it out. So she happened to catch one. After that, she made her husband wear that every time they made love. (laughs) I told told him that that story to Willie and I said, you know, the poor guy died of a heart attack. <laughs> but Willie laughed. He said, Oh, I bet he had a smile on his face. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, 
So you just meet all kinds of characters and have a lot of fun in the barbecue community. It's just a great, great thing. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm trying uh, Artie, I meant to say, Artie introduced me to Ryan Cooper. So I'm, I wanted to make sure you guys knew that there was a connection to Ryan through this little whole thing. Go yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, we yeah, were going to ask how you guys, the two of you came to know each other. Yeah. And of course, Denny, you have your products advertised on uh, the smoke sheet. Yeah. Which is, of course, yeah. Sean Cooper and Ryan, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Ryan Cooper. Ryan Cooper. Yeah. Ludwig. 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 Yeah. Um, please, guys, don't be upset with me. Uh, <laughs> Their hey. their newsletter, of course, they put out two every week. They put out NYC Barbecue, NYC BBQ, and of course the Smoke Sheet, and they're fantastic publications. And we've yeah, had them on this show a number of times. And your product is advertised on it, and it is just it's a classy product on a classy thank publication. Thank you. Thank you. Let, let me ask Artie. Today I was speaking with a. Uh, championship barbecue pit master doug scheiding and when i told uh-huh. him that Artie was going to be on the show he was like well you got royalty as, as leonard said <laughs> uh, but you mentioned well, that you were well, you you came to new york you worked here a couple of years and well, new york more isn't than really, that. I was there for eight years you mentioned yeah. that new york is not really a known as a barbecue hotbed but have you uh known any good barbecue joints here in northeast well you know Paul Kirk had a place there for a while down by the Chelsea Hotel on, in 29th, is it? 29th Street, wherever the Chelsea Hotel is, called Rub, Righteous Urban Barbecue. And it's not in existence now, but if it, if it was still open, that's one I would recommend. Sean is the expert now on New York barbecue. Yes, he is. Um, <laughs> that's back true. Back when, when I was there, it was Patty's Clam House and... Some of the old was wasn't known for barbecue. I love Junior's Cheesecake out of Brooklyn. Oh yeah, Zarda's or not Zarda Zabar's. Zabar's. We have a Zarda bar here. Yeah, Zabar's Deli. There was a place in Hell's Kitchen, an Italian place, Manganeros. I think that's still there. So in New York, I when I think of New York, I think of pizza and cheesecake and clams and chock full of nuts, toasted corn muffins, and that, you know, that kind of thing. I love New York. I had a love-hate relationship with it because there were times when I wished I could be somewhere else, but after five years, you kind of love love the place. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but now I, I'd have to defer to Sean because he's, he's there all the time. I've, I've read some good stuff about what's going on in New York with the barbecue scene. You know, one that certainly comes to my mind, Artie, pardon me for the interruption, was uh, Blue Smoke mm-hmm. that, yes. that Mike, Mills, Mike Mills had uh, had a hand in. I'm yeah. trying to think of Kenny's last name, uh, the guy that actually was one of the founders of Blue Smoke. Yeah. Do you know, uh, yeah. boys? No, no, I don't, but I, I think Blue Smoke closed down uh, it did. due to COVID a, yeah. a few years back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, due to COVID, was it? Yeah, I think so. They still had concessions over it. City Field, so I, that's where my go-to place is, is Blue Smoke at City yeah. Field when I go to a ball game. Yeah, yeah, so I remember that. And then, of course, Mike Mills is another uh, man that, uh, you know, can't go uh, unmentioned, uh, you know, the legend of barbecue, because 
Huh, Artie? I'll tell you. I mean, that, you know, Mike's one of the, you know, one of the, we, he was a lion. He was, a, you know, unfortunately passed, uh, you know, what, a couple, two or three years ago. Mike Mills deserves mention on this show. No question about it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's also a place upstate called Handsome Devil Barbecue. And, that, and Dinosaur you know, is another one. Yeah, Dinosaur in New York City, too. Yeah. They used to be. I'd say if you can talk Danny Meyer into opening a barbecue place, you know it's going to be good. Yeah, Danny. Danny's got some chops. <laughs> any, yeah, anything, any place I've eaten that he was in charge of, it's really good. Do you guys know uh, about into barbecue? I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, do, do you guys know of any good barbecue places in like I don't know Arizona or uh, Utah that 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 area of the country? Because I know. You know, Kansas City, T- Texas, Memphis, the Carolinas are all uh, big, big places. But uh, how about in like uh, the almost mid, almost west, like Utah and Arizona? Yeah. Well, New New Mexico, there's in Santa Fe, there's the the ranch. Um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Used to be he used to own a, a rib place, and now he's expanded to the ranch, and I think he's doing Italian too. Arizona. I haven't been there recently, so I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't help. I'm drawing a, I'm drawing a blank a little bit. Well, I yeah, want to get back. I, to, I want to get back to Denny in, in a second, but I just want to say one more thing. Talk about barbecue and how how it's really just people getting together, and it's uh, special, and the people in it are just very special. I want to mention Sean yeah. Sean Ludwig because we we we've, yeah. we've mentioned him a number of times. The first time that Jeff and I met Sean. We had seen the publication uh, in in the email somehow. We had gotten it, whether it was probably NYC Barbecue. And I said to Jeff, I said, you know, we got to reach out to this guy, possibly get him on the show. And, and you know, just because they, they put out this publication, it would be great to, you know, to get in touch. So we do get in touch. Sean right away is like, all right, let's meet at a barbecue place. And now sure. he doesn't know us from a hole in the wall but right away. <laughs> We're we're out there. I, I can't remember the place because I think it closed. It was Jeff Long Island City, right? Joe Smokehouse, I want to say. Yeah, I don't remember. And it was funny because we get there and Sean, who's eating there, is saying, okay, get this, this, and this. But I, I always tease Sean because he has to take pictures of everything before he eats it. And I was yeah. coming from work and I was starving. And here he is. Wait, no, got to gotta photo it, you know, photograph it. And, and back then... I don't think he was as advanced with his photography skills as he is now. And I was like, oh, can we eat? And everything is like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And and we've never met and we just we all hit it off and it was just yeah. the night it was like it was like we had been friends forever. It was just yeah, such a nice thing. So uh, I just want to say that that's the case. All right, Denny, back to you. I want to talk about you. We we went when we last left, Denny Mike, we were talking about rugs. So Denny, mm-hmm. you you finish with the, you you invent your sauces, and now you've got rubs. Now you're not just inventing, uh, you know, one rub. You you've got what six? Is there are there six rubs that you have? Actually, six uh, and a uh, one in the oven, so to speak. That's uh, actually just waiting for a label. Is uh, my Acajian blend. Mm. So because if you and I'm sure you guys are well aware, Acadian as in A-C-A-D-I-A-N, Acadian, is referenced to uh, Maritime Canada. 
way back when towards the mid to late uh, 1700s. And all these rabble rousers and roaster boats that were thrown out of France and and other uh, places in Europe basically uh, told uh, they can't come back. And they ended up in uh, New Brunswick and Labrador. And it was so cold, they said, we got to get out of here. They ended up in Louisiana, where they became Cajuns. So my new one is Cajun, A-C-A-J-U-N. And it's a take on uh, the Cajun blend and, uh, you know, it's a little spicier than my cowbell held. I can't wait for it to hit the market because uh, that'll make seven. And I might have to stop, although I'm thinking of a, a Caribbean jerk. And, you know, you gotta, you, at some point you got to stop. But, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the Cajun. The Turkey Lurkey is was my most recent, as you know, Leonard. It just kind of took off. It really did. We The label says uh, limited edition, and I said, the hell with it. This is a year-round blend because it's not only good on turkey, like a lot of my, almost all of my blends, but good on everything. And if you don't, you know, you can mix and match. I used to say when I had the five, with my five blends, you have over 5,000 different flavor combinations you can create. You know, I got seven blends now, having a blast doing it. I still like to say, even when I I push myself away from the table and I say, Jesus, that stuff is still damn good. You know, it just works. It's blue collar. I I like to refer to them as blue collar rubs. They work. Yeah, (laughs) I like that. That's good. (laughs) Now, you can, your rubs are sold, your products are sold in Whole Foods, right? In Correct. But not, but not in, are they in New York? Because I know on your website, it says from Maine to Mississippi. Well, it used to be. I used to be down, uh, you see, Whole Foods is, uh, you know, very particular. And when you get a new buyer and this and that, they all think, you know, how all hell breaks loose. I was in four regions and then they pulled me back to the Northeast. So I'm in uh, what is referred to as the North Atlantic region and the Northeast region, which includes the city and into about Edgewater, New Jersey. So if you don't find them in the city, all you have to do is ask uh, at the, at the um, customer service. They're in the system. They'll bring them in. My distributor is out of Lynn, Mass., who services the New York market. So they're not real, you know, they're more about dropping product off rather than hanging around and trying to sell a little bit more of it if you catch my drift so they don't really promote they don't really they're not rag jobbers either so they don't put product on the shelves you know and these guys are you know if you want pain they're really hammering them they're gonna forget you in a you know new york minute (laughs) well danny i gotta tell you they opened up a new whole food near me and I'm going to go in the next couple of days. I'm going to look for it. And if they don't have it, I'm going to ask for it. Which which store is it? In Massapequa, Long Island. Mm-hmm. Oh, That's really? Nice okay. One. I yeah, think most of them, and I may have already sent product to them because they're really quick about, yo, you're going to give us a free fill, right? we got a new store. Sure I will, man. Let's, you know, prime the pump. I'm willing. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice store, too. I Yeah, I know the one Jeff's talking about. That's- yeah. Columbus Circle was a good store for me. You know, I mean, because I used to really work the city doing demos. I did uh, Bowery. I did Chelsea. I was all over the place down there. It was fabulous. I loved it. 
which which you think is I, I probably the same uh, rubs or sauces. I think there may be more sauces, more different types of sauces. Oh, there are. Yeah, rubs. Yeah. There are. Yeah, you know, rubs, you get a lot the, of. I already can answer that one. I mean, really, it's uh, you know, you know, your eyes are water looking at the uh, looking at the Indian sauce aisle for crying out loud. Yeah, that's true. When you get, you get to the rubs, is you know, it's it's really a, you know a lot fewer players in the grand scheme of things. But you know, you got the bigs, you got tight tones, you got McCormick's, and you got all this and that. That's always out there, like you know, Sweet Baby Ray's. You know, God bless them. You know, but when you're looking at a bottle of Sweet Baby Ray's, I think I saw an ad in one of these big box stores: two 40 ounce bottles for something like six dollars and eighty nine cents. Right, <laughs> and, I, and I was begging people. Hey, listen, I, I got to get seven bucks. You know, I'm suggesting you get six eighty nine for a bottle, a fourteen ounce bottle, right? And wait a minute, this really looks like a twelve ounce bottle. No, 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 yeah. it's fourteen. <laughs> Those rubs are big. the The rubs that you sell are it's a nice size. And we will have part two of Denny Mike and Artie Davis on the next episode of Baseball and BBQ. Thank you very much to Denny Mike and Artie Davis. They are really great. Just uh, what else am I going to say? What else? I, I, we've said it all many times. You don't need us to say it. They, the two of them are terrific. Jeff, want to quickly mention, we've got some amazing companies that have been part of this show. We've got BaseballBBQ.com for their grilling tools and accessories. This is a perfect time of year to get ready because the big barbecue season will be upon us very soon. So that's a good thing to to do. We also have the Pandemic Baseball Book Club, which go check them out online and buy books, buy uh, swag, whatever. Uh, Of course, we have fifthandcherry.com for beautiful cutting boards. And then, you know what? We have Denny Mikes. Go to dennymikes.com. His rubs, I haven't tried the sauce. I'm not going to say I tried the sauce, but the rubs are unbelievable. They really are good. And I know, Jeff, you with no kitchen, you've been grilling a lot. And those those rubs are uh, all being used. Absolutely. All right. So, Jeff, it's time. How do we end the show? Yes, it's that time. We end it with the poet and musician. Shel Krakowski. And Dave Dresser with baseball, baseball always, always brings, brings you, you home. home. <laughs> Bring us home. I'll see you next time.
Christ. Christ.